Well, what a blessing to be with you guys. We are in John chapter 6. We're continuing chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And uh, we find ourselves today in part 2 of John chapter 6. Last week, the big idea we saw of John chapter 6 is, is one of provision. We saw that God provides for our earthly needs and also that God provides for our spiritual needs. And today we're going to focus on God's provision uh, for our spiritual need. And, um, and it's interesting, you know, as we're getting into the text today, uh, we're going to be looking at God allowing trial to kind of, uh, you know, clue the disciples in to what he's doing, um, how he allows them to go through a storm. Um, and uh, there's nothing like a storm to kind of reorient you. You know, I was watching a show last night on, uh, on YouTube, and it was one of those shows where they, they're going through, like, the biggest ships ever made. And, uh, and they're showing some of these, these, you know, cargo ships and all. They're the length of four football fields, just massively huge. And it made me think about when, uh, when I, used to, I used to have an 18-foot boat. We'd go over to Catalina all the time. And, uh, and the, the, the waters between the mainland and Catalina are like major shipping lanes. And so we, it was not uncommon for us to, to see these container ships, not even nearly the size of the ships I was looking at in this special. Um, but when you're in an 18-foot boat, man, you want to feel small and insignificant. You go up next to one of these container ships. And, you know, they, they go like, you know, 10, 12, 14 miles an hour. So they're not going really fast. But... You know, inevitably, as you would time it, sometimes you'd be like, well, I can't, I can't go in front of that ship, so i got to wait to go behind him. And, man, it was like victory at sea when you would go behind them. You had to, you know, wait, and sometimes I'd get impatient. I remember one time I just said, ah, let's just go. And just, you know, I knew when I hit the second wake from this ship that I'd made a mistake, and I just watched the water just pour over the bow. I'm, I'm like... Wow, that was a wrong choice right there, you know. And, and uh, just thinking, man, are we going to swamp this boat? Am I going to sink out here right in the middle of this thing? And we're going to see the disciples in a storm today, and we're going to see how God prescribes and uses storms to kind of get us where we're going. But the focus of our text now is, uh, is looking, on, uh, looking at spiritual need. And again, the, the key to our text, it hinges on verse 4. So if you're in John chapter 6, we'll start there. Look at verse 4. It says, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. This kind of just seems like a throwaway line, like an afterthought or a oh, by the way. But really, you know, John chapter 6 kind of hinges on this. Passover commemorates the Jews' escape from Egypt. And not only is Passover a specific event, but it's also associated with sustaining events. The specific event of Passover, of course, was that uh, God was, uh, you know, through Moses, uh, exhorting Pharaoh, let my people go. He was hardening his heart. And so he, he you know, had plagues that, that came upon uh, the people in the nation of Egypt to uh, get Pharaoh to relent, let his people go, culminating in the final plague, that the angel of death would come and strike the firstborn of every household. And so um, God told the Jews that if they would sacrifice a lamb, an unblemished lamb, put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their house, that the angel of death would pass over their house. And of course, this is looking forward to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our, uh, our, our the, the, you know, lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
that's the specific event. But the sustaining events of Passover uh, are where we see God sustaining the, the Israelites in the wilderness. And one of those sustaining events we looked at last week was how God provided manna for them to eat in Exodus 16. Um, this was a bread that came supernaturally from heaven. And the Jews called it manna. In Hebrew, manna means what is it? And that's because they had no idea what this was. All they knew was that this, every morning they'd wake up, God would supernaturally provide this bread for them to eat, to sustain them through the wilderness. It, it tasted as sweet as honey, uh, and uh, you couldn't store it. You couldn't save it up. You couldn't say, oh, I'm going to get up, all, get all of this and keep it for tomorrow because it would rot before the next day. It was only good for that day. And this was the idea that we need to trust the Lord for His provision, right? And that it's, this, that it's not something that, you know, we store up for ourselves. In fact, that's the opposite of what, what the idea was, is that God is our sustainer. You are not your sustainer. That God is our provider. You are not your provider. Um, and so the connection in John chapter 6 is that in similar fashion, Jesus sustains this multitude with bread from heaven. We looked at this last week, how you've got this multitude, they're following after Jesus, they don't have anything to eat, and Jesus miraculously, miraculously provides for them. Takes a little boy's lunch, a couple of anchovies and, and you know, five loaves of bread, and he turns them into a food that feeds you know, 5,000 men, the text says, which means counting women and children, 15,000, 20,000 people, this supernatural provision. And so what, what Jesus does by sustaining this multitude with bread from heaven is he's providing for their temporary hunger, but in the larger sense, he's going to use that provision as a sign pointing to our deeper need, our greater need for Jesus, the bread of life that satisfies our spiritual hunger, that satisfies our eternal need. But the problem that we're going to see is that these people are fixated on the things of the earth. They're fixated on their earthly temporary situation, and they're not really concerned with how Jesus can satisfy their deeper, eternal, spiritual need. So we pick up the story in verse 14 immediately after Jesus feeds them, and it says, then those men, referring to the 5,000 that uh, were gathered in the wilderness, and you know, by extension, as we said, women and children, 15, 20,000 people. So then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, that he turned the fishes and the loaves into this great multitude of provision, they said, <coughs> this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. What prophet are they talking about? Well, Moses predicted that there would be a coming day when God would provide a prophet who would follow him. He, he did so in Deuteronomy 18. Here's the backstory: God appeared to Moses and the whole nation of Israel. And he appeared in, in this dazzling display of fire and a thunderous voice from God the Father speaking from heaven and it freaked the Israelites out. They, they didn't like it. They were scared to death. And so they basically begged Moses and said, hey, listen, you just meet with God for us, and then you tell us what he said. We don't want to meet with him. And, uh, and so in Deuteronomy 18, Moses reminded them of that little exchange. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites 
you must listen to him. For this is what you yourselves requested of the Lord your God when you were assembled at Mount Sinai. You said, don't let us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore or see this blazing fire for we will die. So the people are looking for this this prophet that Moses said would be coming. And here now in John chapter 6, this is where they're coming from. <clears throat> and so the, peop- the attitude of the people basically as they see Jesus feeding them is, hey, we're looking for this prophet to come who's supposed to be like Moses. And if he's supposed to be like Moses, well, it makes sense that he would feed us like Moses. This, this cat comes on the scene. He's feeding us like Moses. This must be the dude, right? That's their attitude. Verse 15, as we continue, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, went over the sea towards Capernaum, and it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. So verse 15 says here that Jesus perceives they want to make him king by force. And that, that title king, the way that it's written there, it's a political title. Uh, It reveals the mindset of the people that Jesus had just fed, that they're focused on an earthly kingdom and on earthly things, and that they are not heavenly minded and they're missing the sign for for what it is. It's to point them to the greater spiritual kingdom and their greater spiritual need that Jesus is the bread of life. And so they're focused on earthly things. All they're interested in is finding a king who can fight against Rome. Here's the deal. At this point, Israel was under Roman rule. uh, And they had been so for 69 years. In 64 BC, uh, Rome had occupied Jerusalem. And so the consuming attitude of the Israelites was, hey, we want to get Rome out of here. We want to get our kingdom established to where, you know, we are ruling and where, you know, our, our, our earthly kingdom is solidified. We don't have Rome in here cramping our style, but rather we get to institute all the theocratic things that we have, and this is going to be, you know, how our kingdom and our empire is, is going to be established and, and run. Um, and so this, this permeated every single thought. It wasn't thinking about the heavenly kingdom, and, and all it was thinking about earthly kingdom. And, and it kind of reminds me of a true story about a woman who called 911. Um, years and years ago, this gal, she, it made the news. She called 911, and, and the dispatcher answers, as they always do, 911, what's your emergency? And she says, I need help. And uh, she, says, she says, excuse me, ma'am, what's the nature of your, of your emergency? She says, I need help, and she hangs up. Well, the dispatcher doesn't have anything to go on. She's like, I don't know what's going on here. So she sends the cops and she sends the firefighters. So, you know, cops show up, fire truck shows up, paramedic rig shows up. And, uh, and come to find out, this gal was moving. She was moving, physically moving from one house to another, and she called 911 because she needed help, right? Now, here's the deal. She had the right concept, the idea that 911 is there to help. She had the wrong context right? They ain't there to help you move, right? That's not, what you call an emergency is not the kind of emergency they're there for. The same thing is going on here. The people, they've got the right concept that Jesus is the king. 
they have absolutely the wrong context that he is the kingdom of he is the king of heaven he's not interested in being the king of your little empire right much as you might think that you know hey I could use a handy guy like you Jesus in my life to you know give me a little more patience maybe give me some prosperity in my business whatever the case may be Jesus is not here to be your own private genie that gives you three wishes. That's not, that's the wrong context. Leon Morris, the late New Testament scholar, he makes this observation about John 6.14. He says, he who is already king has come to open his kingdom to men, but in their blindness, men try to force him to be the kind of king they want. Thus, they fail not only to get the king that they want, but they also lose the kingdom that he offers. Listen, for us, we have to understand this isn't just a story of past history, that this is an important spiritual principle for you and me today. There is a real danger when we look to Jesus to be the kind of king that we want, the king who fits into our plan, the king who takes his marching orders from us, the king who is here to be a welcome addition to your empire. Jesus could care less about your empire. He ain't here for your empire. He's here to establish his kingdom. And he's here to make you a welcome addition to his kingdom as a child of God. That is the whole spiritual principle. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, life is more than food and it's more than clothing. We need to take this to heart, especially right now, especially in an election year. Here in 2020, the temptation is really strong for us to focus on the physical world and even to fight against Rome right now, metaphorically speaking. We get so upset about all the different things that are going on. And listen, we need to understand that Satan capitalizes on that. That if we're not careful, we can find ourselves consumed with the earthly kingdom and its issues. Let me just say this. God's priority, as far as the United States is concerned, not to save America. It's to save Americans. That's God's priority. And, 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 you know, for us, we have to be careful about that. Listen, I'm a patriot. I love my country. I, I understand the history of my country, that it was founded on Christian principles and so on. But listen, America is, is not going to save me. The kingdom of America is not going to save me. God, Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom of God, He is what saves and He needs to be our focus. Now, we have to be careful not to confuse the two. That doesn't mean that, you know, we don't register to vote. We've got a table out in our foyer encouraging you to register to vote. That, that you know, if you look not only statewide but nationwide at, at the, the, uh, the number of Christians that sat out, you know, past elections, that as Christians, we definitely can influence um, both state and national politics by letting our beliefs guide what we do. And I'm a strong believer that more Christians should exercise their duty because, especially in our form of government, because we're a nation of the people, by the people, for the people, and so we, we are supposed to be a citizen-ruled church. The people in Washington and in, in state government are supposed to represent our values. And so the, the, if we abdicate our, our responsibilities to be, to be, you know, good citizens in this world, you know, then we're, we're doing, you know, it's disobedience, really, 
uh, to the Lord. So, so I encourage you to be <clears throat> registered to vote. I encourage you to be mindful of what the different, you know, candidates' positions are and what the different, you know, legislative uh, uh, propositions are and so on, and that we should vote uh, our Christian conscience. But we can't confuse... There, there's a point to where, okay, that that is an important duty, but that's not our primary duty. Our primary duty is to be citizens of heaven and focus on our citizenship in heaven. <clears throat> Paul talked about this very thing in the book of Philippians. He said, There are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. And they think only about life here on earth. But, he says, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting uh, for Him to return as our Savior. So we've got to ask the question, what kingdom are you focused on? What kingdom are you focused on? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and His promise was that all these things shall be added unto you. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. Now, you know, it's interesting. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he tempted Jesus in those three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh. Satan said this to Jesus, turn the rocks into bread. The pride of life. He said to Jesus, hey, you know, here you're up on this, this high temple mount. Throw yourself off. You're so important that the angels will grab you and uh, they'll save you and, and they'll rescue you, right? And how did Satan tempt Jesus with the lust of the eyes? He offered to make him king of the world. Just what these people want to do. They want to make him king by force. Satan offered him that, tempting him in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 says again, the devil took him, Jesus, up on an exceedingly high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus resisted that temptation then and certainly there's no way he's falling for that temptation now. So he perceives they want to take him by force and make him king and so not only does he bail, but his disciples bail. And when you read Matthew and Mark, remember Luke or uh, John tells us selected stories and, and it doesn't necessarily move in a, in a strict chronological sense. It just gives us little snapshots of Jesus' work with the emphasis to be to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they color in a lot of the gaps. They give us a, a chronological progression, and the four together are called the harmony of the Gospels. So Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel tell us the reason that the disciples get in the boat and leave here in verse 16 and 17 isn't of their own choice. The reason they left is because Jesus made them leave. Look at Mark 6.45. It says, immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. That word made in Mark 6.45 means literally to constrain by force, to constrain by persuasion, 
or to constrain by threats. Here's the picture. The disciples didn't want to leave. Jesus had to force them to get in the boat. Why? Well, you can imagine the conversation that took place before they get in the boat, right? Because Jesus perceives, hey, these guys want to make me king. The disciples pick up on that too. So you can imagine that they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? This is a great thing. They want to make you king. Like, what do you mean get in the boat and leave? And you can hear Jesus responding to them, I'm already king. Get in the boat, for crying out loud, right? He's telling them, get out of here. Now, why is he forcing the disciples to leave? Because this temptation is toxic. That's why. It's toxic. And, and it is a very tempting thing for the disciples to think in earthly terms, not to think in heavenly terms. And this is the whole get of why Jesus, what Jesus is doing, why he's doing it. He's trying to convey the message, trying to give the sign by his feeding of the multitudes that, that, that I'm the bread of life that comes from heaven, right? That, that, that I come to give you a, a, the kingdom of God, to lead you into the kingdom, and that I'm the key to it. And yet they're missing that memo completely, and they're saying, we could use a handy guy like you around. You should be our king. You should be doing all this stuff. Now, verse 18 through 21, it says, Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. A great wind, massive wind. Don't underestimate the size of this force. And it was blowing, which means there w- it wasn't letting up. It was a continual storm that they were going into. By the way, Sea of Galilee, known for incredible storms that whip up like this, it's, it's below sea level, it's a very deep body of water, and then the Golan Heights are there, it's towering, these mountains towering up, and the weather conditions, the weather patterns, the wind can just whip down, and so even though it's a lake, it, it can be every bit as tumultuous as, as a storm at the ocean. So the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land where they were going. Now here again, Mark's gospel gives us additional detail. Um, this is the, the, the event, by the way, where Peter walks on water so famously. John doesn't mention it, and, uh, and you, you don't really know why. Obviously, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but Peter and John had this ongoing rivalry, and, uh, you know, this is one of those events where it's like, I ain't going to tell him Peter walked on the water. He doesn't need any more credit, that guy. You know, whatever. But John doesn't mention it, but, but Matthew and Mark, they, they do mention that Peter walks on the water. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But Mark also tells us, that before this miracle, when Jesus appears on the storm, um, that the disciples still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Mark 6.52. They still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. In other words, they didn't understand that Jesus had come to set up not a worldly kingdom. Jesus had come not to satisfy their, their mere worldly appetites. He came to provide for a greater need and, and to have them receive him as the bread of life. 
Now, there's a word in the English language that helps explain the mindset of the disciples here, and that word is the word paradigm. Paradigm is a philosophical framework. Um, it's how you think the world should work, your individual paradigm. And the paradigm of the disciples, how they thought the world should work, is they thought that the Messiah was going to set things straight in Israel, right? That he was going to kick Rome out, that he was going to return, rule, and reign to Israel. And you see it reflected, by the way, in the exchange that Jesus has with Peter in Matthew chapter 16. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says there that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Here's the key. For you are not mindful of the things of God but you are mindful of the things of men. You're having a bad day when Jesus calls you Satan. I'll just tell you that. And Peter's bad day was that he had it all figured out. Jesus, we believe that, that you're the Messiah, and really what we understand is that you're going to come and take care of our Rome problem, and you're going to set up rule and reign. And so Peter starts rebuking Jesus because, you know, he's, he's like, what are you talking about? They're going to kill you. Like, no, you're going to rule and reign, and we're going to rule and reign with you. Like, you know, I, I've got my office furniture picked out, and, and I'm interviewing staff right now for, for my position in this earthly kingdom, you know, and, 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 and all, and, and you're, you're, you're talking about being crucified, and Jesus is like, hey, Satan, listen, you're mindful of the things of men. You're not thinking about the kingdom of God. Now, next week, Jesus is going to confront the multitudes about their flawed par paradigm. But right now, he's got to deal with his own disciples. So how does he do that? We just read it. He sends them into a storm. He sends them into a storm. And the Lord will do that with you as well. Understand, the storm here that they encounter, it's a literal storm. But we also need to understand that it's symbolic in a larger context. Uh, understand, in the Bible, chaotic seas represent the chaos of life. Chaos that we can't predict. Chaos that we can't control. Chaos that we can't fix, right? Uh, the psalmist said this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, and then the psalmist adds this, Selah, which means you just stop and think about that for a while. Because what happens is when the earth is shaken, when the, the mountains are carried to the midst of the sea and the waters are roaring and troubled, when we are facing a storm of epic proportions and the chaotic seas that come that we can't predict, that we can't control, the things that we can't fix, we can be shaken, right? That's a picture. As well, verse 17 says, it was dark. It was dark during this time. And again, that's literal, but it also represents the darkness of this world that we live in. Matthew's gospel says this, leaving Nazareth, 
he, Jesus, came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might fulfill which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, here it is, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. By the way, that section of Matthew referring to this specific time and place that we're reading about here in John chapter 6. That there was a very present, real darkness spiritually. So yes, literally they are in darkness as they're heading into this storm, but it represents a greater spiritual truth. The darkness of the world. And then also we see in verse 19 that they made little progress against the storm. What's it tell us there? It says that they went three or four miles. That's less than halfway across. And if you read in Mark's gospel, it tells us there that they were straining against the oars to do this. That word straining means that they were literally being tortured. That's the words tortured against the, the oars. And it says that they had fought it all night. It said that at this time, it was the fourth watch in the night, which means it was sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So that means Jesus sent them out. They had been in this storm a long time. And they are flat helpless, barely making any progress against it. And maybe that describes you today. Maybe you come to church today and you're in the midst of a storm. And you're dealing with... This whole thing that's against you. And we take all of this together and listen, really what it symbolizes is the futility of human effort. That we live in a fallen world. That we, our world is plunged into darkness. That it's filled with chaos. And here's the thing. The answer to your problem is not human effort. It's not human government. It's not <coughs> something that's going to be solved with an earthly king. Our answer comes from the one who walks above the storm. That's what Jesus does here. Sends these guys into a storm, and then he comes walking out, and you're like, what's he doing? What's the whole purpose of this? Why did Jesus send them out? And then why now does he come walking on the water to them? Because it's the picture of all of this storm and all of this trial and all of this chaos, and Jesus walks above the storm, walks above the trial. He is over it. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us the famous story about Jesus walking on the water and Peter seeing him. They're freaked out. They think he was a ghost. And, uh, and then Peter says, and Jesus says, hey, be cool, guys, it's me. And then Peter goes, well, hey, listen, if that's you, tell me to come to you. And, and Jesus says, come on out, Pete, the water's great. And so Peter gets out of the boat. We know the story, right? Famous story. Peter walks on the water. He, like Jesus, is able to walk above this chaos, above the storm, as long as he's got his eyes fixed on Jesus. But we know from the story what happens. Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus. He begins looking at the wind and the waves. And immediately, he begins to sink. And cries out, Jesus, save me, right? And what does Jesus end up doing? He does a couple of things. He saves him, and then he rebukes him for his lack of faith, right? Keep in mind, these are the same guys who just a few hours earlier 
Jesus had to force them to get in the boat. This is great. They want to make you king. Let's stay. Let's, you know, let, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. See, before this, they, they were so clear. They had such clarity, right? Such confidence, such celebration. Hey, this is cool. They want to make you king. We're all in. We, we want the same thing. And so what Jesus does is he prescribes a storm, sends them into it. Now their clarity is turned into confusion. Now their confidence is turned into fear. And now their celebration is turned into desperation until, verse 21, they willingly received him into the boat and immediately they got to where they were going. That word willingly in verse 21, we'll close on this. Here's what it means. It means to wish and to will with a determination of purpose. That's what that word willingly means. To wish and to will with a determination of purpose. Listen, maybe Jesus has allowed you to be in a storm today. Make a determination to wish and to will to let Jesus into your boat. Right? Let him get you to where you need to be. These guys, they didn't have a clue. They, they couldn't buy a vowel, phone a friend. They didn't get it. Right? That, oh, this is, this is great. And earthly kingdom and, you know, right concept, wrong context. Yes, Jesus has come to be the king. The king of the heavenly kingdom, not of your earthly kingdom. Not of your earthly kingdom. Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel, anybody who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. It's like a person who builds his house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in and torrents and floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on the rock, on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. We're going to close with three questions. Question number one, what kind of a king is it that you want? Take a prayerful walk with that this week. And a sub-question to that would be, in what areas are you tempted to seek the wrong kingdom and the wrong king in your life? Second question, by the way, these questions will be up after the service, so don't stress if you don't get them all written down right now. Second question, what is your concept of God, and how do you contextualize your faith? What do I mean by that? Think of the, the woman calling 911. Right concept of God. Wrong context. He's there. Jesus has come to be king, but not the king of your empire. He's come to be the king of heaven. And he wants you to orient your life to his kingdom, not your own. And so what's your concept of God and how do you contextualize your faith? How do you live out your faith? Is it more of along the lines of, hey, Jesus, I could use a handy guy like you to be part of my life. You give me more patience. You give me success in my job. You know, on those kind of things. That's, is that your, 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 your context of how you live out your faith? Third question, how has or how is God working in the storms that you face. Maybe you're in a storm right now. What's God want to do in the midst of your storm?